This episode of Motley Fool Money brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Get the free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, at netsuite.com. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio this week, senior analysts Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey. Hey. It is Earnings Palooza. We've got so many companies reporting earnings this week, we don't even have a guest. Wow. We're going to dip into the full mailbag, and as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. We begin this week with the big macro. 250,000 jobs added in the month of October. Maddie, we've got jobs on the rise. We've got wages on the rise. I'm betting we're going to have interest rates on the rise. <laughs> I think you're right there, Chris. The 3.1% rise in hourly wages was the number that stood out to me the largest since the recession. So that's a big gain. And we know, uh, as we've been talking about the last few months, wage inflation begets greater inflation in the economy. Generally, that's how it works. And I think this slams home another Fed rate increase in December. And what I think it also does is rekindle some of the conversations we had trying to explain what happened in October, the stock market sell-off, which is rising interest rates, rising treasury yields, and what the Fed's going to do. And I think those are all back on the table now. Yeah, I actually love to see people returning to the workforce when they see a strong market, that labor force participation rate we sometimes talk about. Um, people come back to uh, the workforce, and the, the the unemployment rate actually probably would have dipped if it wasn't for that. Um, part of that is seasonal, certainly getting ready for the holiday season. But I think there's something larger here where you know people say to themselves, you know, looks like if I want to get a job, I can get a job, and that brings people back. I yeah, I agree, and so. For seeing Treasury yields rise, as we've talked about, it's hurting the relative attractiveness of stocks. Just keep that in mind as we think about, well, the stock market's going to rally the next couple months. Is it if this kind of is overhanging still? We have to pay attention to that. All right, let's get to the earnings. Fourth quarter profits for Apple up 41% compared to a year ago, but shares of Apple falling 6% on Friday after iPhone sales came in flat year over year. Jason? A lot of grousing among Wall Street analysts Gross. about this one. Let's everybody just take a step back. <laughs> Let's just keep things in context here, okay? I think bears will try to frame this quarter and the information we glean from the quarter and do some earth-shattering move that shows that Apple's best days are behind it. And I mean, that's just not the case. I mean, I think the big noise that's being made is that management is going to stop reporting unit sales for iPhones, iPads. Max, you know, when you want to steer your identity away from being primarily a phone company, I mean, this is a logical decision. I mean, hey, let's not worry about being so granular. And I think management's point on the call is actually right in that today a unit of sale is less relevant for them than it was in the past. I mean, if you look at iPhones alone, there are a lot of different models now. So, I mean, You've got enough models to accommodate a very big market. It's not necessarily indicative of the health of the business because they're also selling iPads and Macs, but even more so the services side of the business. And and there is something to be said for the wearable side of the business as well. So I mean, they're they're witnessing some pricing pressures in emerging markets. Not terribly surprising. Average selling prices are not going to go to the moon. And they also made the point that they released the most expensive line of phones here. 
uh, first, and in the cheaper line of phones is going to be coming out this quarter. And it was the opposite last year. So that average selling price that was so high this quarter, reasonable to assume it'll probably be a little bit lower than, than uh, or a little bit lower next quarter. But at the end of the day, I mean, these guys are selling millions and millions of iPhones. I don't think that's going to stop. If anything, maybe we see a little bit of time. Uh, between replacements now, because phones are better, and, and we're getting more time out of the phones that we buy. Uh, but they've still got quite the loyal customer base, and I think that things are going to be okay. Yeah, I think there are probably a lot of disappointed analysts out there um, who will no longer get quarterly unit data, um, because, hey, we are all paid to opine on a quarterly basis about the health of, of Apple and all the other companies we follow. But for shareholders, I don't really think it matters. I'd love to see that um, data released on an annual basis so we can kind of, you know, calm down on a quarterly and, and, and just look at things annually. But I'm not actually sure they're even going to do that. So I would encourage them maybe to give us data on, on a yearly basis. But it's, and I will say on the flip side of this, because they are focusing the business more on the services aspect, uh, they are going to give us a little bit more information in regard to that. So we're not only going to get the revenue that the services uh, segment generates, but also the costs involved with that revenue. So we'll be able to see how profitable that is and start looking ahead to see how profitable it can one day become. Can we also just mention that Apple has more cash on its balance sheet than all but 10 companies on the planet? I mean, the size of all but 10 companies on the planet, it's just a remarkable number. I know we talk about it every quarter and it's never it's not surprising, but it's still just remarkable to me. I mean, the bottom line is with this and I think investors really this is what they want to know is what do I do? Is this a problem? Is this a crisis? Do I need to sell my Apple shares? Absolutely not. I mean, this is just as good a business today as it was yesterday before they announced these results. So, if you're a shareholder in Apple, you need to hang on to those shares knowing that, that you're an owner of one of the most important companies in the world. The hits just keep on coming for General Electric. Third quarter profit and revenue came in lower than expected, and new CEO Larry Culp cut the quarterly dividend to one penny per share. Ron, how much worse is this going to get? Well, Chris, you know the old saying, it's always darkest before it goes totally black. <laughs> uh, things are not good. Add on to that, um, Justice Department and the SEC are investigating accounting charges. They're splitting their power into two divisions to cut costs. They're selling um, many units to try to raise $20 billion to get that balance sheet out of trouble. At last count, I want to say there was about $115 billion of debt on that balance sheet. It's very hard for them to turn this business when they have those handcuffs of that bad balance sheet. Um, so, that's very important. Uh, they will save $4 billion um, from cutting that dividend. Um, so, that's real money. You know, It's nothing to sneeze at, but they've got a lot of work to do here. Um, the the power business itself tumbled 33% in the latest quarter. Um, so they they've got actual business problems, not just financial and balance sheet problems. It's it's yeah it's it's sad to see this this venerable brand and company kind of go through this now. But I I look at the size of the business now, and the fact that it really now is a power aerospace kind of business. I don't know. Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> I know you know Buffett's always looking for that you know the next elephant, but and not not to say GE is the perfect fit, but right. the businesses itself and what Berkshire Hathaway does nowadays, at least on a on a major part of its business, it kind of fits with GE. And the size is about right. Well, Maddie, you think back to earlier in the year when we talked about General Electric cutting their dividend by fifty percent, and I think you were one of the people who made the point at that time, saying, "Hey, look, why don't they just cut this thing all the way?" And do it in one fell swoop. And now they've they've cut it down to just a penny. But you look at this stock, 
And if it feels like we've been talking a lot about the stock falling, it's because it has been falling. <laughs> and today, it is at its lowest point since the summer of 1995. Steve Broido, our man behind the glass, what else was going on in the summer of 1995? Uh, Classic Batman. I have bad high school memories. <laughs> That's how it's been going for GE. Yeah, not good. And, you know, there's probably a, a lot of money to be made on uh, on playing the bounce here if they can clean up that balance sheet and turn this business. But I think the risks outweigh um, those probabilities, I would stay away. And I just realized that Apple could buy three GEs with the cash <laughs> on its balance sheet. Not to nail Apple into every story. <laughs> That's right. Shares of Starbucks up 10% on Friday, hitting an all-time high after reporting its best quarter in over a year. Uh, Matt, the fourth quarter comps came in plus 4%. That's nice, but I'm a little surprised that the stock is responding the way it is. Because Not that I'm complaining, but it just seems like a little bit of an overreaction to a nice quarter, but not at an all-time high kind of quarter. Right. It does. It it does seem strange to me as well because China comps for one, where you know they're betting a lot of their future on. We're only up one percent, but it's still. You look at the comp growth in the U.S. four percent. This this is coming off roughly two years where Starbucks was kind of struggling to break out of that two three percent uh, range. So four percent's nice, and the better still on the call. Management mentioned that. A lot of that was coming from more beverage orders, which are higher margin. A lot of people think, well, it's because they have the food offerings, and so that's why the ticket sizes are getting bigger. But actually, it's people buying more beverages, which is a positive. The other highlight to me, I think, was the 15% growth in the U.S. rewards members to 15.3 million. That's the strongest growth in seven quarters. We've talked on this show about how it's just surprising to us that this number, this rewards member number, isn't bigger because they do drive 40% of the dollars spent at Starbucks. So it's nice to see a big pickup in that number. This week, two groups of shareholders got some long overdue reasons to smile. Details coming up. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. New radio station to welcome to our affiliate family, KSOO, the talk of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Welcome. Who's up for a road trip? (laughs) Always. I would love to get out to South Dakota. Under Armour's third quarter profits came in higher than expected, sending shares up 25% this week, Jason. When was the last time we said anything approaching that with Under Armour? I mean, it's little by little. It seems like maybe this turnaround is starting to take hold. And I mean, when you look at the quarter... On the whole, there wasn't one thing that really stood out, but it's just progress on all fronts, really. The international business is still strong. U.S. is treading water. and I know treading water is not what we really want to hear. We want to hear more about growth. Uh, But it's worth noting that they cut back a lot on uh, promotional uh, stuff for for the quarter. And so, that affected the U.S. business, affected the the direct-to-consumer business as well. But inventory management is improving by leaps and bounds. most importantly, really, in in one of the hurdles we've held them to here is that the COO and CFO are still there. Plank hasn't scared them away yet, so that is a big plus. And hey, listen, you've got the Rock pushing your stuff still. I mean, that's just a win in any capacity. So all in all, it's not like they're there yet, but 
we are seeing signs that this that this turnaround is starting to take hold. Under Armour is still a very powerful brand. It sounds like they've come to, to, to the realization that they need to maintain that premium uh, status in the market as performance gear, instead of trying to go performance and fashion and wherever else they may go. I think that's good. The market opportunity is a little bit smaller, uh, but it's a big market opportunity still, and they have a reputation in the space for high-performance gear anyway. So, all in all, as a shareholder, I'm happy. Yeah, all kidding aside, Matt, at the beginning of this year, that is one of the things that we talked about was Kevin Plank, for all the things he has done right at that company, he has struggled historically keeping an executive team around him. And that was one of the things where he said was, let's see if we can get through the entire year with the C-suite still in place. I know, it's it's funny to kind of joke about that, but it, it's true. And I, this is, Under Armour is an example of a founder-led business. And we love investing in these kind of companies at The Fool. And Under Armour has been you know, a wonderful company to follow and invest in. But it really got to a point where I think Kevin Plank had to realize that there were decisions he was making that he needed more counsel, he needed more advice on. So I'm really thrilled to see what, you know, hear what Jason said about the CFO and CEO staying on. It's really key. You know who had a better week than Under Armour shareholders? Fitbit shareholders. <laughs> Third quarter profit and revenue came in higher than expected, and they raised guidance for the holiday quarter run. Yeah, I've never been a fan. <laughs> I don't understand why it's a standalone company. Can I interest you in a stock up 33 <laughs> yeah, no, percent in one week? They've done well. I'll give it to them. Smartwatch sales grew significantly over of the quarter. Sold 3.5 million devices. Average selling price increased 3%. They're now the number two player in the smartwatch space, having had a zero share only 14 months ago, according to the company. So, that's pretty impressive. They've made some nice tuck-in acquisitions in the healthcare market. Healthcare grew 26% for them. It's still a relatively small piece of their revenue, but it's increasing. But hey, competition is pretty steep with Apple, Samsung. Um, so, it's interesting to me that they're a standalone company. I don't know if they will be forever, but good for them. It's a solid quarter. When you look at the track record this company has had, and I'm thinking mainly of the stock and how it has struggled over the past couple of years, I have to believe, or maybe I'm just hoping, <laughs> that they are not taking the guidance raise lightly, because they're going into an incredibly important The holiday quarter is so important for this company. If they can do this again in three months, they might actually have something. Yeah, it was interesting. Their guidance was mixed because their earnings guidance going forward was better than expected, but their revenue guidance was light. So they're they're hopefully being conservative on the top line. Mercado Libre reported a loss for the third quarter, but overall sales came in higher than expected. Uh, Matt, we have always talked about Mercado Libre as being the Amazon of Latin America. Um, you were saying before the show. You don't think of them that way anymore. No, I don't, especially after this quarter, Chris. And that's because if you look at Mercado Libre's press release, for example, the first six bullets of that press release didn't even mention the core e-commerce business. <laughs> Instead, it talked about Mercado Pago, which and metrics like payments transactions, transaction volume, off-platform payments, mobile point of sale, mobile wallet, asset management. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, it reminds me several years ago before eBay and PayPal split, if you read, if you read eBay, eBay's conference calls or press releases, it spent most of the early part gushing about PayPal, and not so much about the marketplace business. And that's exactly what's happening with Mercado Libre, and it points to the fact that I think payments and financial technology is becoming so crucial to the business, and, and the growth has just been impressive. You look, total payments transactions were up 67%. On-platform payment volume reached almost $5 billion, but something noteworthy was that in September, so the last month of the quarter, off-platform transactions exceeded marketplace transactions. So, in other words, more people are using Mercado Pago outside of Mercado Libre than using it inside Mercado Libre. So, 
it's not just the quote-unquote Amazon of Latin America. I think more and more, it is really the PayPal of Latin America. They see opportunity in payments. That's <laughs> I, interesting. You, you know something about <laughs> payments. So. I was, I was just going to say, it sounds like uh, one more for the war on cash. Hey. Uh, shares of Teladoc up this week after third quarter revenue came in higher than expected. Uh, they're still losing money, Jason, but Teladoc appears to be losing less money. They are, and I mean, they, they do have a clear path to profitability. So that's one of those things we always like to see these unprofitable new IPOs. They've been in the markets now for a few years. But um, when, when you look at the business, it's market, I mean, this is an attractive opportunity because I think it tackles perhaps the greatest challenge in healthcare, and that's scaling it. Uh, so, I mean, it's very difficult to go through their release and the call and not be excited with what they're doing. U.S. paid memberships now stand at 22.6 million people. Uh, the visit fee only population is about 9.5 million. There was another interesting point they made there, and the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services just published the rules, which will allow Medicare Advantage plans to include telehealth as part of their bids in 2020. And what that ultimately means is that Teladoc is going to be able to offer its full suite of services to those 21 million additional enrollees. So, again, we talked about when they changed their name from Teladoc to Teladoc Health. It's really about this comprehensive holistic solution. Uh, the partnership with CVS, I mean, that's not something that was just entered into lightly. There was a lot of research done with that from 2014 on. We're seeing that roll out now in the uh, the minute clinics, these virtual minute clinics, and you'll see as time goes on, CVS try to leverage that physical uh, presence in those stores. It's going to be less about buying Pringles and more about actually focusing on good health, I think. Uh, Probably easy to look at the share price today and anchor. Feel like it's probably taken off, and maybe you missed the boat. I would encourage you to take another look because uh, it's still a very reasonable price with it for a company that has a, a big opportunity ahead. I'm going to overlook the shot you just took at Pringles. Yeah, I was well, about to say, I what's mean, wrong with Pringles? Pringles thing. Salty okay, goodness. What if we said combos? <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's fine. Well, I, I Not the pizza flavor. I don't like combos. So. <laughs> um, real quick on Teladoc, this is a five billion dollar company. Yeah, um, and I, I don't think I could name one of their competitors. I'm sure they have them in this space. To what extent, if any, is management talking about acquisitions? Because they appear to be big enough now that if they've got smaller competitors that they can snap up and incorporate, that might be a good move. Well, that's a good point you make. Most of the competition in the space is much smaller than they are. They've made a couple of big acquisitions to date so far, and the most recent one was Advanced Medical. And what that really did was give them global exposure. So, they now have this, this global service called Global Care, uh, where they can accommodate patients uh, all over the world. So, really, it makes a lot of sense what they've been doing. They've been trying to gain as much market share early on as possible. Yes, that plays out on the financials in the short run, but long run, I think it's going to be the smart decision. You think they could go to Apple and ask to borrow some of that cash <laughs> they have on the balance sheet? <laughs> it's worth a shot. All right, this is normally the part of the show where I say, guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show and we go to a guest, but uh, no, it's Earnings Palooza. We got no guests this week, so hang in there, Ron. Oh, here <laughs> for the long haul. More headlines coming up. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. All right, before we get back to Earnings Palooza, quick shout out to NetSuite by Oracle. It's the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy to use cloud platform. This is not some one size fits all kind of solution. With industry specific support for a broad range of business, NetSuite works the way your business works. Thousands of the best known brands and fastest growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it's available to you. 
the power of the world's most popular cloud management system is more affordable than you think. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights to overcome the obstacles that are holding you back, and they're offering them for free. You can save time and money by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly right from your desk or phone. Get the free guide entitled Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, and you can get it by going to netsuite.com slash fool. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. A couple more radio stations to welcome to the family, guys. KGVO in Missoula, Montana, and KMPT in East Missoula. we got a road trip, Matty. We're, oh, we're, yeah. going, we're going to South Dakota. We're going to hit big sky country. So, nice. first of all, there's, there's a Missoula and an East Missoula? Yeah, it's sprawling. Sure. There you go. We love to see it. Let's move on to the earnings palooza portion of the show, which is all of the show. <laughs> a bad year for Kraft Heinz just got a little bit worse. Third quarter sales came in lower than expected, and shares of Kraft Heinz falling on Friday, Ron, and hitting a new 52-week low. They have really been struggling um, with the trend towards fresher, healthier, more natural foods. It's showing up in the numbers. They did manage to kind of eke out uh, an overall revenue increase of 1.6%. But they have higher costs, um, marketing, hiring, um, new product costs just really are weighing on that income statement. Their adjusted EBITDA was down 16% in the US, which is obviously very important to them. Uh, adjusted earnings fell 6%. Um, they are guiding us to expect some relief from some of these cost pressures. I think we have to wait to see how that plays out because you have kind of top line weakness. You've got pressure on margins. Never leads to goodness on the bottom line. So we'll have to take this quarter by quarter. But I don't see this abating anytime soon. Yeah, and Jason, when you look at what the stock is doing, I don't personally feel any pressure to jump in here. I know, and I don't think I'd ever feel really any pressure to jump in there, but correct me if I'm wrong, was it Berkshire that made a big investment in Kraft Heinz? You are correct. Yeah, see, they're probably sitting there thinking right now, I mean, I should have listened to those guys in Molly Full Money, invested in McCormick instead, <laughs> because McCormick and French's and Frank's Red Hot, those things are just on fire, baby! Oh, my God! Whoa. Wow! Uh, yeah, I think the, the problem with Kraft and others is just that the, the importance that consumers used to place on those brands and the, the marketing budgets that companies like Kraft had to, could put behind those brands, it's no longer that important anymore in, in the what's called the FMCG, fast-moving consumer goods category that's kind of got in vogue right now. And that's just because I think consumers, it's more about efficiency and, and delivery and things like that. And, and generic brands and others seem to fit that just fine. They're not really distinguishing between brands anymore. Right. I, the Kraft Heinz merger, I think, made sense. They were able to squeeze out uh, about $1.8 billion of costs there. Um, so, I, I think that, that that made sense. But now, now where do you go from here? you, you got to get on the right trends, or you're going to continue to suffer. What was that thing I just saw the other day? Like, millennials are apparently killing American cheese. Did anybody else see that? <laughs> no, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> but it so makes sense. Google it! I swear I saw it! <laughs> A slowing economy is taking its toll on China's biggest e-commerce company. Alibaba did nearly $12.5 billion in sales in the second quarter, Matt, but they are lowering expectations for the full fiscal year. Right. I, it, it, that's, the, that's the headline, but I mean, I still look at the results of revenue up 54% in the quarter, you know, 56% increase in the core commerce business, and even though it's still less than 10% of revenue, 90% increase in cloud services. And so, you can see the twin pillars that have made Amazon what it is, also working really well for Alibaba. They also added 32 million mobile monthly active users uh, just in that quarter alone. 
And you know, as we we come to accustomed to with Alibaba, also generating healthy profits, healthy operating cash flow. I would just say it's Alibaba is a little bit in that tailspin of other big Chinese tech companies where there's just you know the the headline risk, the trade war, the tariffs, whatever it is. This is why a company you have Alibaba stock trading at near a 52-week low. With this kind of growth rate, though, it just it starts to look pretty interesting to me. Shares of Yum Brands got close to an all-time high this week after third-quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. And once again, Jason, we saw KFC and Taco Bell doing the heavy lifting, um, making up for weakness at Pizza Hut. Yeah, the old saying goes, two out of three ain't bad. And that is essentially Yum's quarter in a taco shell. <laughs> Crunchy taco shell. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I... KFC and Taco Bell continue to shine. Uh, you look at Taco Bell, that's about 30% of total operating profit. Uh, system sales grew 8%. KFC, which is essentially half of the company's operating profit, uh, was another source of strength with uh, same-store sales growth of 3%. Uh, if you also recall, earlier in the year, Yum! Brands made an investment in Grubhub. Uh, they bought $200 million worth of stock from Grubhub. So that gave Grubhub some much needed capital. Also tied the two together to really focus on getting uh, more sales out there in, in regard to KFC and Taco Bell. Pizza Hut is the worst pizza around. <laughs> it's not good pizza, I'm not going to lie. Um, they have some work to do, no question. It seems like an opportune time, given Papa John's weakness. I was just going to say, given everything that has happened over the past 12 months with Papa John's, how is Pizza Hut not taking advantage of this? I think this time next year, we'll have a better idea. and That's mainly because we know they have taken over as the NFL's main sponsor. That has the potential to really help them get this thing going back in the right direction, but we're not going to know, at least for a little while. To Ron's point, they could probably focus on improving the product a little bit. You don't like ketchup on bread? <laughs> oh, gosh. Harsh. It's not my thing. Wow. But, I mean, it's worth noting they've essentially reached their goal of 98% franchised operations. Management's committed to giving back 65 to $7 billion to shareholders through 2019 via repurchases and dividends. So, I mean, as a quick service restaurant, it, it, the pizza's not the best in the world. I don't ever eat at Taco Bell, and I can't remember the last time I ate at KFC. But apparently, people are going there because they're chalking up a lot of sales. And because KFC's delicious. <laughs> I would push back on that one. You know what else Taco Bell does a really good job of? They do a really good job with promotional items. Because one of the things that came out in this quarter was the nacho fries promotion, which I did not partake in. <laughs> But uh, apparently, I was in the minority because that was that was involved in more than a quarter of every ticket they had. Well, and hey, let's relive that Red Sox victory one more time because remember when Mookie Betts stole second <laughs> That's base? Right. They're oh, giving yeah. away a free Doritos Los Taco or whatever it was, and so I, I gotta <laughs> imagine some people went in there and took advantage of that as well. Oh, I love the Mookie. <laughs> Shake Shack falling more than 11% on Friday after a weak third quarter report with negative comps, Ron. Yeah, the report wasn't horrible, but that, those top line numbers certainly scare investors when you have a stock that's priced pretty, you know, to perfection, I want to say. Comp store sales down 0.7%, which is actually an improvement from the 1.6% decline last quarter. So, you know, silver lining there. Um, 4% decrease in guest traffic. I'm no analyst, but I think you probably don't want to see that at a restaurant. Um, they had revenue up 26.5%. That's largely because they keep opening new stores. Um, they did raise full-year revenue outlook, though, which is interesting based on those metrics that I just went through. So, that's curious. They'll continue to open new stores. They expect to open 36 to 40 additional stores in 2019. That will continue to drive revenue. 
we obviously need to see um, see this uh, filtering down into margins and earnings. So let me go back to Taco Bell for a second because <laughs> you look at Shake Shack and they make a good product, but from a business standpoint, they don't appear anytime soon to be employing any sort of a promotional strategy in the same way that Taco Bell does, whether it's discounting. Um, or any sort of one-time items. So, to your point about them raising guidance, I'm not entirely sure what rabbit they're going to pull out of their hat to make that happen. Uh, Shake Shack opened around the corner from my house. I've seen no promotion whatsoever. You drive by, you see it or you don't, and, and you either go in or you don't. I've seen nothing about it. Well, and you know how that ends. I mean, Chipotle ran their their business very much that way for a long time. Eventually, something slips, and you've got to start promoting. You know, even after Friday's big fall in the stock price, the market cap of the company is still about 1.8 billion. That means each of the 180 shacks is valued at 10 million dollars. I mean, and, and and that's high. And Ron is here throwing out you know negative comps, and I'm right. thinking to myself, how in the world could each shack be worth 10 million dollars? That's uh, still a little high. Yeah. Coming up, we will dip into the full mailbag, and we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. Don't hit the pause button and don't touch the dial. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, and Ron Gross. Our email address is radio at fool.com. Drop us an email, would you? We're lonely in here. Radio at fool.com. <laughs> Question from David in Massachusetts. He writes, What is the definition of an institutional investor? Does the percentage of institutional investors indicate if a stock is under the radar? And how do institutional investors affect the volatility of a stock? Three really good questions, Manny. Yes. Uh, well, I don't think there's any kind of hard definition of an institutional investor, but I think we think of it as any investor that's not a retail investor or individual investor like us, or maybe a small RIA investor that's managing you know, family money. I mean, it's, it's really just you're talking about hedge funds, investment banks, pension funds, those kind of big money managers like Fidelity. And so that's what an institution is. And to the second point, yes, I, I think if you see a company, especially we tend to see them with small caps. Those small caps tend to have not a lot of institutional ownership, and that and that makes them interesting because they tend to be off the radar because institutions, large institutions, usually can't invest in them anyway. And so you can have a little bit maybe informational advantage as an individual investor buying small caps. Yeah, and the institutions that are focused on what we call quant investing um, or algorithmic investing are, are often very responsible for a lot of the volatility we see. These are folks that manage billions and billions of dollars. And we'll 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 take their their portfolios up or down several percentage points, um, you know, with just the, a check mark on a piece of paper or on a computer, um, and and you'll see big big swings in both stocks, the market as a whole, specifically um, the, the importance of indexes like the S and P five hundred index. So many um, so much dollars flowing into those indexes, you'll see wide wide swings up and down in what people think of as a proxy for the market. Yeah, I think one of the things we look for. Um 
in, in any of the stocks that we're covering for members or, or recommending for services, you look at the ownership uh, or the holdings, rather, the, the companies or the institutions or uh, who has meaningful ownership in that company. And oftentimes, particularly with new IPOs, you'll see VC interest, venture capital interest. And a lot of times they can have 5%, 10% ownership, even more. Um, and that's fine. I mean, that's they kind of helped bring that company public and, and uh, that, that helps them in that regard. But it's also worth remembering whenever you you see that heavy VC interest, they have an exit strategy in mind. And by exit strategy, I mean they want to be able to sell that and make some money at some point. They want to realize those gains. So, I mean, that is something worth noting when you see these new IPOs uh, take into consideration the fact that there may be an exit strategy at some point here that could, in the short run at least, play its way on the stock price. And then I'll finally add that it's a combination of the institutional analysts, sometimes what we call the sell side analysts, giving guidance to the institutional investors that will cause stocks to to, to jump or, or decline in, in relatively large swings. Most retail investors like us are not focused on these sell side um, analysts and the buy, sell, and hold, but the institutional investors clearly get their guidance from them. So for individual investors like us, when we're buying a stock, we're gonna, you know, make a phone call or click a button and it all happens in one fell swoop. I'm curious, Ron, back in your hedge fund days, when you were buying shares of a company, did you have I'm assuming you had to do it sort of on a piecemeal basis. You couldn't just go in all at once and buy all the shares you wanted. Correct. We would work with traders and we would say, let's work a ten thousand share order with a top price of seven dollars per share and you know they would they would go to work for us. Um, or you know, if we had smaller orders, we could do them by ourselves through our own systems. But yeah, especially if you're dealing with small caps and micro caps like I did, you've got to work those orders over days, if not weeks. One more earning story before we get to the stocks on our radar, and that's Spotify, which surprised Wall Street by reporting a profit in the third quarter. The stock was still down this week, though, Ron. Yeah, because they don't really make money. <laughs> the only reason they were profitable is because of their investment in Tencent Music Entertainment Group. So they got to kind of goose up the value of that, which led to a paper profit. But they're not profitable because of what they actually do. In fact, they've reported net losses every year since they launched in 2008. Um, so, you know, what, what do you do with that? At some point, they've got to make money. Um, Listeners will recall they went public back in April um, at, in, a, in a new way. Really, they went kind of a direct listing approach rather than using underwriters, which people thought, "Ooh, maybe this is kind of the the new wave of going public." I don't think necessarily we've seen that yet, um, but this was a way for um, investors in the company to get liquidity, and, and as a result, now it's a public company. But you know, they, they've got good subscriber growth, um, but they did have to kind of pare back on guidance with respect to that. They pared back on guidance with respect to gross margins. Uh, they just can't seem to, to flow money to the bottom line. They have nearly 200 million monthly average, uh, active users. What is wrong with this business that they can't make money, Jason? Well, because they have a pretty compelling free offering, actually. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I use Spotify, but I never pay for it. And so I think with Spotify, you know, we learned some lessons going into that IPO. And, and I think Snap is another good example of, of learning some lessons going into that IPO. Uh, we paid attention to Facebook and Twitter, and I think we learned a lot from that to kind of get an idea of what might happen with Snap. And with Spotify, we could look back to Pandora at least and get some idea as to the economics of that business and, and what they would have to do 
to make any really meaningful money over the long haul. And the economics of the music business are just really bad. And so, I mean, they could probably have a user base of 300 million, but I'm not necessarily sure that makes for such an attractive investment. And it just goes to show that there are cases where it can be a great product or service for consumers that doesn't necessarily translate its way into good investment for investors. We're going to get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Steve Brodo, is going to hit you with a question. But also, with Steve Brodo on the other side of the glass, visiting this week all the way from New Zealand, Denver Steel, yes. one of our Welcome. listeners and members down at Motley Fool, Australia. Awesome. Uh, Ron Gross, you're up first. Steve's going to hit you with a question. What are you looking at this week? I've got a recent total income recommendation. It's Carter's CRI, dominant children's apparel retailer in the U.S. with 18% market share. They've had really strong financial performance across multiple market cycles. But now, let's be clear, they did have some weakness relatively recently. Toys R Us and the Bonton bankruptcies played around with them a little bit. Some weather hurt them as well. So, you have an opportunity to get in at a good price. Stock is trading only at 16 times earnings, steadily growing dividend, currently at a 1.8% yield. They buy stock back. They continually raise that dividend. I think you'll do well. Steve, you've got children. Question for Ron about Carter's? How important is the uh, the process of sales? Like, there's a big sale going on at Carter's. How important? It seems like with clothing retailers, everything is about everything being on sale all the time. Yeah, that promotional uh, the promotional is very difficult for them because they they use it to clear out inventory often. Which if if you're uh, in the wrong place with inventory, that that's that ends up being trouble for your margins. You want to be able to sell as much uh, full priced apparel as you possibly can, but often it's not the case, and they need to clear it out. Jason Moser, what are you looking at this week? Yeah, over the past three weeks, I got two postcards from our veterinarian as reminders that it's time for me to bring in two of our three dogs for their annual checkups, shots, tests, yada, yada, yada. Now, Chris, this reminded me that I spend a lot of money on those animals every year. Now, I'm not complaining about it. I love them very much. But Really? Because it sounds a little bit like you're complaining. (laughs) Let's go ahead and profit from the money that I'm spending, right? My radar stock is Zoetis, ticker is ZTS. Uh, If you remember, they were spun out of the Pfizer company a few years back. Zoetis develops and sells veterinary vaccines and medicines for food animals as well as companion animals. Uh, The space itself is a massive market opportunity, globally estimated in the neighborhood of $30 billion or more. Uh, Zoetis' scale and reputation in the field for excellence gives them a very loyal customer base. And also, they, they do plow a lot of money in annually in research and development to help develop new vaccines and medications for for animals. So, all in all, uh, love what they're doing. They just reported a great quarter. I own shares personally. I probably will add to that position at some point. Steve, question about Zoetis? So, we have two cats. How many is how many cats is too many cats? <laughs> uh, two. <laughs> <laughs> Matt Argusinger, what are you looking at this week? A uh, company I've discussed before, IGE, ticker IQ. This is kind of the leading streaming company in China. This stock has round-tripped uh, from an $18 IPO price in the spring all the way to 46 and now back Oof. to about $20 today. And I think it looks pretty good to me. The, the company reported results this week. Paying members hit almost $90 million last quarter. That's up 89% year-over-year. Let me repeat that. Up 89% year-over-year. And, uh, and that's great, because membership revenue, uh, which is the key part of the business now, up 78% growing much faster than the, gr- than the growth in content costs. So, as long as that, those trends continue, this is going to be a much larger and much more profitable company in the future. Steve, question about IGE? Sure. Does the current political environment worry you with this company? I mean, we hear a lot about China from our president. 
Yes, we do. I, I, I think the headline risks about the trade war and the tariffs, I mean, IGE, like a lot of these companies, it's really 95% domestic China. It really has nothing to do or offer in terms of trade or transactions between the U.S. and China. So, I just think the headlines have created all this you know, tension. They've caused the valuations of these companies to drop, and they look pretty good to me. Three stocks, Steve. You got one you want to add to your radar? I think I'm going with Jason Moser on this one. All right. You're not put off by uh, his anti-cat comment at all? No. Listen, not, I was just going to say, man, lest I reel in emails from our listeners calling me a cat hater, I am nothing. What was nothing. that phrase you used? Food oh, animals? Kind of was that, did you use the phrase food Would animals? Would you prefer I say livestock? I, uh, yeah. It can be queasy. I like cats just fine. I just don't have any in our house. That's all. Radio at fool.com. Keep those emails coming. Jason Moser, Ron Gross, Matt Argusinger. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks, thanks Chris. Chris. That's going to do it for this week's show. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Yeah.